Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, and welcome to another week of The Learning Curve, where we bring in smart people to talk about smart ideas to keep us all smart, or at least make us smarter. And of course, I could not do this without the smartest person on this team, Kara, my co-host. <laughs> hey, Gerard, I'm not, I got to tell you, it's been quite a week and it's only Wednesday. I'm not feeling so smart, but but um, we're going we're gonna to keep working at it. And I love that introduction because, boy... We've we've got a lot of smart people to talk to this week on the learning curve. It's been it's been a good one. It has. Yeah, yeah. So in earlier um, earlier this week, we got to talk to Kendra Espinosa. We got to talk to Erica Smith of IJ, and we're going to talk a little history today before we get into our stories of the week because there are other things going on in the world in in the United States in in our states and communities besides this landmark victory at Supreme Court. But <laughs> we might forget sometimes. So as we talk about things in the news, there was a really interesting uh, conversation that took place on Good Morning America, and it was with Dwayne Watson. Uh, He's an editor at Teaching for Black Lives, and he's part of a group that uh, they're putting together documents and materials for people to read to talk about black history. And this is from an article and the title, Teachers Are Reinventing How Black History, Anti-Racism Are Taught in Schools as systems fall short. And the article opens with um, the work of historian Carter G. Woodson, uh, who in fact was the second black to earn a PhD from Harvard, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is the first. But he's the one that helped to create what is now Black History Month at that time, Negro History Day, which became a week. And he was a big proponent of teaching the contribution of black people to United States history. Well, you fast forward to 2020, uh, there's some school systems that are doing a great job. And as Dwayne would mention, some that have fallen short. And so he's taking a lot of the energy coming from the protests sparked by the death of George Floyd to say, if we're going to say black lives matter, then let's also talk about the role of why black lives matter for not just today or this century, but for a very, very long stretch of time. And so it's good to see um, this subject on the forefront. As you know, I was a fifth grade school teacher, but I also was a teacher of African-American history uh, for two years in a Saturday program in Jersey City, New Jersey, and have also had a chance to teach a, a seminar on the history of black education in the United States, co-taught it with uh, Dr. Howard Fuller when we were working with a group of, you know, the next generation of uh, uh, African-American. Man, how did I, I missed that. I want that class. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not Dr. Fuller in it, you'll fall asleep if it's just me, but uh, together we made a pretty good team. So I think this is just something positive uh, to come out of uh, a lot of anger and frustration that we've seen. And, you know, if you look at it historically, when you see a rise, for example, of African-American studies programs at a San Francisco state or a Harvard University in the 1960s, some of that was a spillover to what was going on in the 60s. And so uh, history has a way of repeating itself. But I think this is a step in the right direction. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking as I hear you talk is I hope that um, we can start to get not just schools and our teachers. I think there are many, you know, like you said, there's schools that are doing it really well. There's schools that are falling quite short. But to the extent that all parents, and I mean all parents, can start to get engaged and understand more about the curricula that we teach at schools, because um, 
you know, I, I too have been a teacher and, and I am a parent and sometimes you see what's taught about, uh, black history and it's, um, it's barely a nod, right? It's, it's, it's talking only about Dr. King and, and not really talking about history much at all. And then on top of that, I also think about, you know, the teaching of black authors, in African American literature, and it's it, it yeah. should it should be a real holistic, um, integrated curriculum to the point where you know it's we don't have to single out special times and special things. I um, as I think you know, I am the proud board chair of one of the oldest charter school organizations in in the country. In fact, certainly in Massachusetts, City on a Hill, and we take mm-hmm. great pride in the fact that um, we have always taught you know, some of the greatest African-American authors and that it's an integrated part of our curriculum. It's not treated as anything different or special. It's what our kids learn. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes I look at the education that I got and my own kids are receiving and I think, oof, a lot missing there. So I hope that we can, I hope that this gets elevated. I hope that this gets more attention. And I'm glad that this moment is being, it's being used in this very productive way. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So we've got, we're going to switch gears just a little bit here, although talking about history and civics, and that is that um, U.S. history and civics are a no-go next year for the nation's report card. So this from Ed Week. So uh, another test, another victim of coronavirus, um, and that is that U.S. eighth graders will not be taking the U.S. history or civics assessments, the NAEP assessments, in 2021. So of course, I don't have to tell you that we use NAEP for a variety of purposes, but mainly it's um, it's we call it the nation's report card. Right. But it's just sort mm-hmm. of take a pulse, a sample of where kids are at. And when NAEP results come out, we usually time and again are disappointed and more disappointed and, and even more disappointed to figure out that actually too many kids, most most kids, even those who are doing really well um, on, on other types of tests, don't perform well on NAEP. So, you know, this is, um, I think that it's being seen, I would say that it's a loss. I think NAEP, NAEP provides a really useful sort of check on what is being taught, what's not being taught. They say that they're going to try and get to it as soon as possible, but I got to tell you, and you, I know, as a former education commissioner have thought about this a lot. Um, the future of testing and accountability in this crisis is something that I think those of us who have been around long enough to understand that um, tests aren't always the enemy, um, that that there's a place for testing and a place for accountability. Um, I think we need to be thinking really deeply about about how we maybe make fewer better tests, how we how we um, salvage right <laughs> salvage um, these tools that can shine a spotlight on you know how all kids are performing and and highlight achievement gaps among other things. So. Yeah, I'm not shocked that it's canceled. Uh, a little disappointed, but I understand, um, you know, it's, it is the nation's report card uh, going back to the mid-1960s when we decided that we wanted to figure out how our nation's children are actually doing. And assessment is one way to, to do that. I think it's also going to feed into a broader conversation that's surely going to take place uh, before Corona, the question of are we testing too much now states have said, you know what, we're going to suspend tests for a year. We're doing the same for our nation's report card. You know, it'll, it'll just be interesting to see how this feeds into the anti-testing narrative. Someone could say, you know what, we went a, uh, an academic year, 
with no testing. Uh, the world did not fall apart. Uh, students seemed to be happier um, and we moved forward. So that may not happen. It's just uh, something we've got to take a look at as we move down the line, because there will be a post-COVID-19 world. And I think we start thinking what that's going to mean for, as you say, accountability and testing. Yeah, let's let's move more quickly to that post COVID nineteen world and, <laughs> and find a way to to strike the right balance. Quite frankly, because I think that um, whew, it's we're gonna be having some interesting conversations in the fall. I believe. Um, yeah, the fall is going to be a very different fall. Not only going into a presidential election, but just <laughs> what does it mean to be a student in twenty twenty. And how many of us, I think you sent me a meme some time ago about like parents pushing their kids out the car, right? Yeah. Without that first day of school. <laughs> I, I keep that in my mind. And I think, but I think that as many of us do that, we'll be thinking, please let this last like at least a month, right? Can I just have yeah, a month? We'll a, month. That's a, win. a month would be a huge win. All right. So coming up, we are, um, we have got a really interesting guest with us. Um, a little, a nice, I think, welcome change of pace. We're going to be speaking with Professor. Gordon Wood um, coming up right after this. And today we're so pleased to have with us Professor Gordon Wood is Alva O. Way University Professor and Professor of History Emeritus at Brown University. He taught at Harvard University and the University of Michigan before joining the faculty at Brown in 1969. Wood is the author of The Creation of the American Republic, which won the Bancroft Prize and John H. Dunning Prize, and The Radicalism of the American Revolution, which won the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Ralph Waldo Emerson Prize. Professor Wood's The Americanization of Benjamin Franklin was awarded the Julia Ward Howe Prize by the Boston Authors Club, and his volume in the Oxford History of the United States, Empire of Liberty, A History of the Early Republic, won the Association of American Publishers Award for History and Biography, the American History Book Prize by the New York Historical Society, and the Society of the Cincinnati History Prize. In 2011, Wood was awarded a National Humanities Medal by President Obama and the Churchill Bell by Colonial Williamsburg. His reviews appear in the New York Review of Books, and he is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. I cannot imagine a more fitting guest to have with us on this, um, the day before the 4th of July. Professor Wood, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Well, we're, we're very excited to talk to you, and it feels like um, such a wonderful time to take a step back and, and dig into history, especially with somebody um, who has written and researched as much as you have. So you've written a lot about 18th century America, uh, that it was the product of the Enlightenment that combined reason, science, law, and religion uh, to the benefit of future generations. The founders thought that the survival of modern republics depended on well-educated and virtuous citizens, something that we talk a lot about on this show. <laughs> um, what kind of civic education did the framers think was necessary to perpetuate this experiment in ordered liberty? Well, by becoming, by throwing off monarchy and becoming republics, uh, Americans uh, really made it, really made it uh, essential that you have a universal public education, at least at the outset for all boys and men. Uh, you have your first uh, examples of, um, of plans concocted. Jefferson and Benjamin Rush and others concocted plans for 
uh, universal public education support, you know, from, from grammar school right up through uh, college for, uh, for, for, for the people, because it was necessary in order to have enlightened citizens, you, you had to sustain a republic from below. Uh, they had to be virtuous. They had to be sense, uh, sensible. They had to know that they were responsible for the fate of the state. Unlike monarchies where your authority came from the top down, republics needed an enlightened citizenship. So you have all of these plans. Now, they don't get implemented right away. It's the next generation in the 1830s and 40s that you begin to have uh, public education for spreading, especially in the north. But the idea was implanted with, with, with the revolution, with the uh, institution of republics, which is a big deal. It's a, uh, to get rid of monarchy uh, and, and create republics is, is, um, is, is the essence of the revolution. I'm curious, I, I thank you for mentioning um, who had access to the kind of education that the framers envisioned um, at the outset. Just for our listening audience, I, I used to teach, by the way, in the School of Education at Boston University. And when we would talk about the history of education, um, I found many of my students were surprised. <laughs> I don't know why, but surprised that um, women and many others were left out of the equation in the beginning. Can you just tell us a little bit about um, the, the amount of time it took for public education to open more broadly to people besides white, white men? Well, it wasn't too long after the revolution because women began complaining. Um, you know, Abigail Adams never had any education. She's self-educated, but she's well-read. She knows not as much as her husband, but she knows an awful lot. She lo- knows about history and, and politics more than most white uh, males. Uh, and, and so it's quite impressive. And, and from, from that, those beginnings, when once boys are going to school, then, then the girls begin clamoring and begin to have girls' schools created uh, before the end of the 18th century. And then you have, uh, within the early decades of the 19th century, the, the colleges. I think um, uh, Mount Holyoke is one of the first female colleges uh, instituted. Uh, but it takes a while. But within decades, uh, you have this clamor, and um, that 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 that's part of the importance of the revolution. One of the other things that you've, of course, written about is is America's original sin, um, slavery. And over the past thirty years, various historians have given us an even deeper understanding of the horrors of slavery in the Western world. Um, I think it's interesting. I've been you know, trying to talk about this a bit with my young children. And there's always this sense that somehow the North or New England, especially where we live, is um, is exempt from from those sins, which is, of course, not true at all. But could you talk a little bit more for our listeners about the role that New Englanders and Southerners play together in the Atlantic slave trade? And would love for you to comment on how we should be thinking about these things today, reconciling the ideals of the Declaration of Independence with with the difficulties of slavery that obviously we are continuing to confront. Right. Well, this is a major issue today, as you know, uh, with all of Black Lives Matter and all of those movements that it's become uh, central to our uh, to our culture. So it is it is important to get the story straight. Uh, now, we have to start with the fact that slavery existed in the world for thousands of years, several thousand years, going back to antiquity, going back to the, to the ancient world. 
and what happens in the, and I think people today are getting the story backwards. Uh, the, the founders, uh, many of them, uh, are not uh, sustaining slavery. They're attacking it. The first anti-slave movements in the history of the world come out of, of the, the new United States. Now, it's confined to the northern states. There's no doubt of that. Uh, and they had all been implicated in slavery, uh, particularly New England, especially my own state of Rhode Island, was notorious a slave trader. Uh, and they had probably 12% of the population enslaved. Uh, New York City had 14% of its population enslaved. So slavery existed in all the colonies, and uh, but much more deeply entrenched in the southern colonies. 40% of the uh, population of Virginia uh, was enslaved. 60% of the uh, population of uh, South Carolina was made up of, of African uh, slaves. So the South has a very different situation, much more deeply embedded in, 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 the, uh, in the sin, if you will. Although, as I, as I say, the slave traders uh, were coming out of New England because they're the ones that had the merchant ships and so on, uh, particularly Rhode Island. So slave trading is, is important, but at the, with the revolution, you get the first movement against it in Rhode Island and elsewhere in Massachusetts, uh, uh, again, attacking slavery. And all of the Northern states begin legislating or judicial, uh, taking judicial action against slavery. And by 1804, all of the Northern states have abolished slavery legally. Now, some slaves existed uh, continued to exist because they didn't grant nobody's older slaves were were grandfathered in and uh, and so you do have slaves existing as late as the eve of the Civil War in some of the northern states but legally it abolished and there's no more uh, acceptance of, of slave um, slaves from from the outside world uh, that does not happen in the South alas and and uh, the South is put on the defensive. And uh, its institution of slavery becomes a peculiar institution, no longer national. Slavery had existed, as I say, everywhere. It's no longer national. It's confined to the southern states. And you have the beginning of the split, the sectional split, that within, um, what, 70, 80 years ends in the bloody civil war, a really bloody civil war, which is fought over slavery. Uh, so it's a, a complicated story. But to somehow uh, think of uh, the, the Americans as a whole as, as putting up with this is, is to get the story backwards. The Americans are the first people in the world to attack slavery um, and, and to mount anti-slave movements. And, and as I say, uh, it's, it's not a majority of the population or, or a large number of people, but it is substantial in the North. And it, and yet there was a movement against it. And of course, the slave trade is ended uh, as it promised in the Constitution by 1808. So it, it's a complicated story. And uh, it's unfortunate that we were unable to abolish it nationally uh, at the time of the revolution. But um, there were efforts made and, and the, the, the whole anti-slave movement is launched with the revolution. The revolution makes slavery a problem, a problem for the first time in the history of the world. People come to see it as, a, as something 
bad. That that's hard to understand, but slavery was taken for granted uh, as in an unfree world, a largely unfree world, for for centuries. Professor Wood, this is Gerard Robinson. It's an honor to have you join us. Thank you. So here's my question, and the first sentence is a quote. Quote, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world, end of quote. Great Britain's King George III is reported to have said, after learning George Washington was going to resign his commission as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army and return home to Mount Vernon. What were the qualities and virtues that caused the founders to regard Washington as an indispensable man of his era? Oh, yeah. They, they just were, all were awed by him because he, he was a man who lived by the book. He was very self-conscious of, of what was virtuous behavior, disinterested behavior. That's a term he uses, uh, a word that we no longer uh, use very much, or at least use rightly. Uh, he, uh, he wanted to go back to Mount Vernon. He did not want to acquire political power which was a, a rarity. I mean, all of his predecessors, going back to Julius Caesar, up to more recently, uh, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, and uh, uh, Marlborough, the Duke of Marlborough, uh, they all expected political rewards commensurate with their military victories. Marlborough had, had, had defeated Louis XIV, and he became a, a member of the ministry, and they built Blenheim, they was given Blenheim Castle by the king. He expected political rewards, and he got them. Uh, and so didn't Cromwell, and so didn't Napoleon. Uh, he was not just going to be a general; he's going to be as a, eventually emperor. Washington wanted none of that. He sincerely wanted to return uh, to to his farm. And and the only example in history was this character out of antiquity, uh, lost in the midst of, of uh, the early Roman Republic, uh, Cincinnatus, who Gave, gave up his sword and, and picked up his plow and went back. And so that's why Washington was called the modern Cincinnatus. And, and George III was, was stunned by it, as everyone else was. This was just not something that was expected. Uh, now, of course, in, in fact, he has to be dragged out of retirement to come to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and then forced, literally uh, compelled to be president. Uh, he resisted at every uh, every turn. He simply did not uh, want to wield power, but he gained power by his uh, willingness to to give it up. And uh, he, he it's just an extraordinary character. They knew that, and I think he remains the most extraordinary figure in our history for that reason. In one of your answers, you mentioned Abigail Adams, and she's one of. Uh, several women during the 18th century who truly did great things, and that's including Martha Washington, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, and Mercy Otis Warren, just to name a few. What female figures from ancient and modern history did these women regard as models they wished to emulate? Well, I don't think they had any female models. Well, what could they be? So they, uh, I mean, insofar as Abigail, for example, or Mercy Otis Warren, they, they looked to men. They wanted to be like men. 
uh, Abigail always wanted to have the same kind of education that her husband had. Now, you make a mistake, however, if we think of them as, as Abigail being a modern feminist. She wasn't. She was willing to be to defer to her uh, husband on on, uh, on matters on important matters of the house, and she did run the household. She was a very smart woman, self-educated, and as I say, she read history. She read. Um, um, uh, you know, Milton, and, and she knew the literature of England uh, very well. But she's not a modern feminist. She's not, advocating, despite her letter saying, remember the letter, uh, the, the ladies, John, she's not advocating uh, equality of, uh, in political realm, in the political realm. Although I think uh, she would have welcomed that. She, she and Mercy Otis Warren certainly uh, were, I think they yearned to be, uh, to be, uh, uh, equal citizens that is able to vote uh, along with the men. But there were people, young people, uh, younger people. Uh, Judith Sargent Murray, we don't mention her, but she's a, a young woman in the 1790s who reads uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, Rights of Women and picks it up and, and, and uses it, writes uh, articles and, on, on the rights of women on, and claiming equality. And so you have the beginning of the what you might call a, a real women's movement coming out of the revolution. Uh, it's not led by, uh, by Abigail or, or uh, Mercy Otis Warren, but uh, Murray is certainly an important figure. Um, now, Wheatley is, uh, of course, that's a, a story in itself. She's a, a slave uh, brought from Africa, but bought by a wealthy uh, Massachusetts man who, uh, who frees her and, and, teaches her to read and write. And she's a smart woman and she, she reads Milton and she reads Pope and, and she tries her hand at, 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 uh, at poetry. Now it's very derivative poetry. It's not romantic. Uh, and she doesn't spend a lot of time talking about her, her about slavery uh, and the plight of, of uh, Africans, but, but she is an extraordinary uh, uh, woman and and of course the uh, people treat her that way. Washington's impressed by her and writes to her. She writes, sends something to Washington. He writes back. Uh, her uh, master or her, her uh, the man who owned her and freed her <coughs> takes her to London. <coughs> she's the toast of of London. <laughs> so uh, she's an extraordinary example. And but people are impressed because they couldn't imagine a, a slave. Uh, writing anything, never mind writing uh, decent poetry. Uh, but that's the state of things. It, it's, I think the most important person in that list uh, that you give is not, I mean, isn't in the list, is Judith Sargent Murray, people who are arguing for real equality. And that, that begins to take off and, and, and convince a lot of other women. Dolly Madison is a uh, is a wonderful entertainer, and she really helps her husband, uh, in, who is kind of shy and not really up to uh, entertaining in in, uh, in Washington as president. Uh, but but she uh, she's the hostess with the mostess, and and really that that's her uh, that that she's really extraordinary in that respect. But not a, a feminist by any means. <laughs> Nonetheless, a, a, a long line of women, um, whether on their own or um, bolstering their, their husbands there in Washington, we like hearing about these figures. One um, 
One figure, too, that I feel we have to ask you a question about, especially as this podcast will be released on the eve of, of course, Hamilton, the film coming out on Disney Plus. And that is, of course, Aaron Burr, who um, has probably he, he has received much more attention in the past few years than I'm sure you might have imagined uh, before Hamilton became a Broadway show. Um, but let's let's talk about him for a minute. So Burr, of course, was a lawyer, a U.S. Senator from New York, and then the third vice president of, of the United States. Why did the founders object so much to Aaron Burr? And, and we hesitate to ask you to draw too many lessons for today, but what what does their rejection of him say about character traits of ambitious politicians? What what do you think? Well, I think Aaron Burr, of course, is no uh, Donald Trump. He's, he's the exact opposite. And what he is, is a, is a man of, of impeccable credentials. Uh, he he was the, the son of a, the president of Princeton and the grandson of another president of Princeton. He had all everything working for him, his ancestry. Uh, and of course, that was the fatal flaw. He took uh, his position in society for granted. John Adams couldn't do that. Neither could Jefferson. Their fathers were not college graduates. So here is his Aaron Burr comes along and he says, well, I'm entitled. I'm entitled to, to my position. And he never thinks about, well, I've got to be virtuous. I've got to act a certain part in order to earn my role in society. He says, I'm just, I deserve that role because of who I am. That is who my ancestors are. Now, that's, that runs against the, the whole thrust of the revolution. The revolution is a repudiation of blood. Republicanism requires people leadership who are leaders who are virtuous, not not hereditary, it's not hereditary rule. Monarchy is all about blood, all about hereditary. So you have Burr coming along and he, pay, he pays no attention to the whole thrust of virtue. He doesn't talk about virtue. He isn't concerned about it. Uh, his letters are not thoughtful. They he doesn't have uh, any long letter about the Constitution. He never gave it much thought. He's a very smart man. He's a Princeton graduate, of course, and uh, he's got everything going for him. He was a military officer, but he expects leadership to, you know, to come to him naturally. And when he's not uh, given his proper respect, he gets angry and he turns against, eventually he turns against the country. Uh, I mean, in this crazy scheme he had, not just killing Hamilton, that 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 led to his uh, isolation, much to his surprise, he couldn't believe it. And he but he has this concocts this crazy scheme to break up the West, break up the country. And he's he's brought down with, with the uh, a trial. Of course, he's exonerated, but he's by the try in the trial because uh, John Marshall, who hated Jefferson, vice versa. Uh, lets lets him off by defining treason in a very narrow way. Uh, but Burr is destroyed, essentially, and he lives out his life, the rest of his life, in uh, virtual obscurity. But he had so much promise. He had everything going for him, but he, he just messes it up. Uh, he, and that's, in that sense, they couldn't trust him. Hamilton, when there's a division, as you know, in 1800, it's not clear and uh, who's going to be president? Both Burr and Jefferson end up with the same number of electoral votes because somebody forgot to throw away a vote 
and by the Constitution, it's thrown into the House. And uh, everyone knows that Jefferson was supposed to be the president and, and Burr the vice president, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't, he, he won't disavow the office. He just says nothing. And, and Hamilton and other Federalists write to their, to their uh, Federalist congressmen appears in Congress saying, look, for God's sakes, uh, you know what? I don't like Jefferson. We are enemies. He said, but I, I couldn't, we couldn't tolerate having Burr be president. He, he would be a disaster. He's corrupt. Uh, at least he's, uh, Jefferson has a modicum of principles. Hamilton's willing to admit that. Uh, and so from that kind of pressure, the, finally the Federalists throw their votes to, uh, to, to Jefferson. So people disliked him. They mistrusted him with good reason. He, he, was, uh, he was a conniver. He was an expert politician in New York, but he's, he's just not one of the founders. He took his position for granted. He really belongs in the old world. He should have been in England at the time where corruption was uh, flourishing in politics. So he doesn't fit the revolutionary uh, thrust at all. Well, I think we we can all appreciate that frame of um, of the need for trust in our political leadership and that that analysis of 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 how it came out of the founding fathers and the American Revolution. We will keep in mind uh, for those of us. I think I think much of the country will probably be. Um, be uh, watching and thinking about Aaron Burr, in fact, this weekend. Um, <laughs> Professor Wood, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We appreciate you being on the show, and it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back to The Learning Curve. And I have a really good tweet of the week, and it's from the Institute for Justice, June 30th, quote, the Supreme Court delivered a major victory to parents who want to choose the best school for their children, including religious schools, said senior attorney Eric Smith. Quote, this is a landmark case in education, end of quote. And I agree. Anytime the Supreme Court rules on an education issue, public or private, uh, it is landmark. But this one particularly so because it's dealing with religion and religious schools. And we know a great deal about the wall of separation between church and state. And there's been a centuries long battle to identify where's a fine line. But at least with this court decision, uh, it said that states can't use religion as a reason not to support a tax credit program, which is in Massachusetts. But we know from our work here, Cara, that there are 37 states with a Blaine Amendment. And ironically, you happen to uh, <laughs> find yourself associated with two states, Michigan and Massachusetts, yeah. which are most of the worst in the country. It's, but maybe that will now change. So uh, I, uh, IJ. I don't have as much hope. I don't have as much hope for Michigan as I do for Massachusetts. I think we're going to push. We're going to see. We're going to wait. I, I love you, Michigan. I'm I'm here in Michigan. You're you're a beautiful state full of beautiful people, but you're getting this one wrong, way wrong. I mean, shout out again to IJ. Power to the parents. That's what this is all about, really, right? Opportunity and and giving parent we know as as um my professor, Dr. Charles Glenn, who's gonna be with us next week. I talk about him a lot. He's finally coming on. We're super excited about it. But he always, you know, reminds us that, you know, parents have a right to direct the upbringing of their children. And what, what more important than the right to 
um, choose where they are educated. So, and since you mentioned your uh, professor, as you know, he was actually referenced uh, in one of the opinions, uh, his book, as well as work by uh, the Pioneer Institute. Absolutely. Well, he's been at it and they've been at it together for a very, very long time. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Really, really looking forward to it. Okay, Gerard. And until next week, I hope you have a wonderful 4th of July. Maybe you'll be watching Hamilton on Friday night, as I think I probably will with my children. Some Hamilton, some fireworks, some time with family and appreciation for, um, for, for what we all have. So have a good one. Same to you. 